starting in verse 1, says, Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now turn to chapter 12, verse 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in their place to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem and from the villages of the, whoever those guys are, and from the house of Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Azmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the peoples, the gates and the walls. And so I, the leaders, and the, I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large choirs, one on the right hand of the wall and the other toward the refuse gate. Now turn to verse 38. The other Thanksgiving choir went up the opposite way, and I was behind them with half the people on the wall. Drop down to verse 40. And so the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God, likewise I and half the rulers with me. Verse 43. And that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. And at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses with the, for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them into the fields of the cities, the portion specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we are coming toward the end of the book of Nehemiah and we see, Lord, how you are faithful to your people. Lord, as we look today how they responded to your faithfulness, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how you've been faithful to us. Lord, you've been faithful to us. Even those people that are here that, that may not even know you yet, you've been faithful that they might know who you are. You've been faithful to us. You've answered our prayers. You've provided every good thing. And Lord, even in the midst of so many unanswered prayers and so many things we don't understand, you are still good and faithful to us. And I pray, Lord, you would help us to see that and rejoice in you because of that. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would do for us what we couldn't possibly do for ourselves that you'd open the eyes of our understanding to see how great you are, your great love and faithfulness. Please, we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. So you remember where we are in Nehemiah. This book started with a man who was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah was someone who worked for the Persian king, sort of tasting food, tasting wine to make sure the king wasn't poisoned. Very important position. He would have been someone the king of Persia trusted. 
He's doing this at a time when God's people, the Israelites, are actually still mostly living under the Persian reign. They're under the, the, the rule of the Persian king. But God is beginning to fulfill a promise that he made to them when they went into this captivity. God had said to them that they'll be in this captivity for 70 years, but after 70 years, he'll bring them back into the land, he'll bring them back into Jerusalem, and he'll rebuild the city. Now that process had started way before Nehemiah. God had sent Zerubbabel, God had sent Jeshua, God had sent Jeshua, God had sent Ezra, and they had rebuilt the temple. They had begun to clear away the, rubber, uh, the, the rubble. They had brought people in to, to begin to live uh, around Jerusalem. And things were beginning to progress. When Nehemiah comes, the temple's been rebuilt, but if you remember, the wall was still broken down. And so God gives Nehemiah that calling, that job. I want you to lead my people to rebuild the wall. And of course, the wall's important. Because the wall was what protected the city, was what kept the city safe. In fact, if you remember, we talked about that in this culture, in this part of the world, a broken down city wall was a sign that your God didn't take care of you. So it was a way to kind of shame them that their God wasn't strong enough. So Nehemiah goes, you know what, let's go build that wall. And so they did. Even though they were being attacked by their enemies, they were being told that they shouldn't do this, they were being told they would fail, they had all kinds of opposition. They built, rebuilt this whole wall around Jerusalem, not just a little sort of fence, but we're talking about a 30-foot wall that you can walk several people on top of across. They built it in 52 days. So the wall gets built. And we see that at the end of chapter 6. And then what begins to happen is they begin to, to just think about what God has done. And, and Ezra the priest leads them in, 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 in a bunch of worship services. They rediscover the Word of God. They read the Word of God, which they probably hadn't heard consistently in generations. And they have this like mini revival going on where, where people aren't just ex excited about a wall being built or a city being lived in. They're excited about the God of that city. They're coming back to this God. And we've talked about the whole thing through Nehemiah has been not just God restoring walls, but God restoring a people. God bringing a people back to himself. And so Ben did a great job last week talking about, in chapter 10, about a heart for God's house and how God called the people to, to make sure that they took care of what was needed so that the worship of God could happen in the temple of God. And we get to chapters 11 and chapter 12, and we see there's still things that need to happen. There's still stuff that has to take place. Specifically, we see in verse 11 that, that Jerusalem is, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 11, that Jerusalem is really underpopulated. So, so having walls is good for a defense, but if there's nobody behind the walls, well, people can just climb over and get in and take over. And you have to know, when marauders come, they're, they're not going to kind of go to the outskirts because there's not much money in the outskirts. They want to go where the big money is. They're going to go to the big cities. And so if those cities aren't defended, they're going to go into those cities and try to take what they can. And so we see in, in verse 1 of chapter 11 that the leaders of the people, they were in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people, well, they needed to sort of come in. And so how did they do it? They started casting lots. It's kind of like throwing the dice. Now, they did this on purpose because in, in their mindset... God is completely and utterly sovereign, which should be our mindset, by the way. <laughs> that God is completely in control. So that even the roll of the dice, however it lands, that's what God's will was. That's kind of how they were thinking. And so, in fact, there's this proverb, Proverbs 16, 3, or 33, that says, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And so the idea was, okay, we don't really want to move into Jerusalem because it's dangerous. We don't want to really move into Jerusalem because... 
we won't be able to take care of our lands that are on the outside that we'd want to, so we won't be as prosperous. But if this is God's will, we'll do it. So what do they do? They roll the dice, and every one out of ten people, men, moves their family into Jerusalem. And they do this, it's interesting. We read in verse 2 that it says that the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. Now, now we don't know for sure if this is a way to say the people that, that when they, the, they, the dice was rolled to them and they were supposed to go in Jerusalem, we don't know if it was them going, you know, that's fine, we'll go, and it was their willingness, or if there were other people who volunteered. We don't know for sure. But here's what we do know. God is beginning to resettle his holy city. And he's doing so, listen, by chosen and willing volunteers. That's what he's using. Chosen and willing volunteers. Interesting, Paul, talking about his own ministry, says in 1 Corinthians 9.17, Paul says about his ministry, if I do this willingly, he says, I have a reward. But if against my will, he says, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. So he knew what it was like to feel like, am I really supposed to be doing this? Uh, But he also knew what it was like to go, I love doing this, whatever his ministry was. In a very real sense, we see this happening in Jerusalem. God is filling Jerusalem back up with people who, some people are going, I hope the dice doesn't fall on me, but if it does, I'm going to do it. Other people are going, you know what, I'll do it. I'll, I'll put myself forward. I'll volunteer. And this is how God is filling up his city. Now, now what's really cool about this to me is that I feel like this is kind of where we are often. Often what happens is we are in one of these two camps. We're the chosen, i.e., John says, can you please volunteer for this ministry? (laughs) Or we're the willing. We say, hey, you know, I'll I'll, I'll put myself forward. What can I do to serve? We're, We're in either of those places. But, you know, here's the truth. God uses both those kinds of people. You might be here today, and you might be already on the, on the children's ministry team. You might be thanking God that you're not serving the kids today, and you get a chance to sit and rest and catch your breath. And you might wish you could do anything but serve in kids' ministry. I want you to know, even if you feel like you're not all that willing, God still wants to use you there. But it's also interesting that God seems to say here, the people seem to celebrate people who are willing to offer themselves. People are willing to say, God, I'll, I'll do this. I want to serve. I want to, I want to be in the city, so to speak. I want to be a part of what God's doing. This is what God wants to work in us. It's also interesting to me about this, about the idea of chosen and willing volunteers, is that Jesus is both. Did you know that? He's both. On the night that he's going to be arrested and crucified, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. A lot of you guys know this story. He gives away from his disciples. He falls on his face. It says in Matthew 26, 39, it says Jesus went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That, that Jesus is in a place where he knows the whole reason God has sent him to this earth is so that he can die for the sins of mankind, and yet he prays, Lord, if there's any other way, I really would rather there be another way. But not my will, your will be done. So, so it's interesting that Jesus was in this place, and yet Jesus also says in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of myself, he says. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So in one sense, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get this picture of Jesus who's in his humanity is saying, Lord, is there any other way? Because this is going to be hellish, quite literally. 
the very hell that you and I should experience was poured out on Jesus at the cross. And he knew this is where he was going. And yet we see another place in John chapter 10 when he's revealing himself as the good shepherd, something that God had done to Israel. Jesus is equating himself with God the Father and saying, I'm the good shepherd and no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down for my sheep. The reason I'm bringing this up, folks, is because this is what should motivate us to, be, do, to do the same. Lord, I, I want to be willing to serve. I know I'm chosen to serve because if, I'm, if you called me to follow you, Lord, I know that you also called me to serve, but I want to be willing to serve because you were so willing to serve. But more than that, more than that, and in fact, if you don't get anything else, get this thing, okay, listen, more than that, I want you to know this is Jesus. This is his heart towards us. I mean, we, people do celebrate when someone, man, just really gives of themselves. We do think, man, that's so cool that that person makes so much sacrifices for that group or that charity or for, or for their family or whatever the case might be. We celebrate people doing this, but do you realize who's done this more than anyone else? Is Jesus himself. Jesus who is God the Son who took on human flesh to come to this earth to show us what love looks like and to purposely die to take away our sins. And when he conquered death, three days later, he proved everything he taught and everything he promised was right and true and trustworthy. It's important because when we are in scriptures like this, it's easy for us to just think about how should I do what they do and forget about what's already been done for us. Because when we know what's been done for us, then we can have the joy that we need to serve using this picture as a metaphor to resettle the city. Now it's important too to notice that these guys are resettling the city for some very practical reasons. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 mentions that their brethren who did the work of the house. I want you to notice that phrase, the work of the house. Now drop down to verse 14. It mentions their brethren who were mighty men of valor. And then drop down to verse 16. It, it lists a bunch of names that I won't dare try to pronounce and talks about these guys who had the oversight, notice, of the business outside the house of God. Now this phrase, the work of the house of God, that would have to do with kind of the, the not the priests who are actually maybe conducting, conducting the ceremonies, but those who would gather, the priests who would gather all the materials needed. They, they were kind of like the staff, you might say. They were kind of making sure that the, the right sheep were there, that the sheep were were worthy to be sacrificed. They're the ones that would make sure the utensils were cleaned and that kind of a thing. When it mentions these mighty men of valor, these would have been actually temple guards. You can imagine that the, the enemies of God's people would want to kind of bum rush those, uh, those temples and, and, and defile the temple if they could. So they, they picked the beefiest guys. That's actually what the Hebrew means. Like, these are the beefiest guys. They picked the, the, the guys who were henched to kind of guard the temple to make sure that nobody could get in. Very important practical job in that kind of environment. Those who are on the outside of the house of God that are referred to there in verse 16, they're probably the guys who basically maintain the building. You know, it needs to be replastered, it needs to be, you know, weeded, it needs to be swept and cleaned. That's kind of what they did. Now, I'm saying this because it's important to recognize that when God calls, the, his, when he wants his city to be resettled, his holy city to be resettled, he calls people to very practical things. They're not just there to kind of be in some sort of holy huddle or, or kind of have their, their head in the clouds. And 
There's something holy about this practical work that we need to understand. In fact, it's interesting to me that, that really this practical work is something that God considers to be holy. In, in Acts chapter 6, we, we see the, the beginnings of the first Jesus followers. God's added in a very short amount of time to 120 Jesus followers. God's added another at least 8,000. He's doing a, a, just amazing things. And they're all in Jerusalem for the most part. And a lot of people that are there, they, they've come there for the feasts. And what's happened is the longer they stay in Jerusalem, the more, the more their money's running out because they were only supposed to be there for maybe a few weeks, but now they're there for months and months and months and they don't have any money. And so the older people are really suffering because they can't just go get a part-time job somewhere. And so they're needing to sort of make sure that the people that have become Christians, that their widows, their older people specifically, are taken care of with food and practical needs. And so initially it's the 12 apostles who are doing this work. But then they're supposed to be out preaching the gospel and praying for people and telling people about Jesus. And so here's what they say. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, they say, Therefore, brethren, they give commands to the people. They say, Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that whom we may appoint over this business. That is the business of distributing food to those who needed it. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Their job was simply, it wasn't complicated, it was simply to, to have a list, okay, so-and-so uh, needs food, so-and-so needs food, and so-and-so needs food. Take that food in baskets and drop it off. That's it. But... What happens is the apostles, those chosen by Jesus to make sure that his church goes forth, they say, no, 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 whoever those guys are, they need to be full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. They need to be the most spiritual people in the church. They need to be solid and mature just to pass out food. Why? Because God sees the practical as holy work. He sees it that way. Now, look at chapter 12, verse 1. The list in chapter 11, in case you're wondering, are, are the list of those people who, of the families who came to live in Jerusalem and then the families who stayed outside of Jerusalem. So rather than read those lists, we're going to jump to chapter 12. Now it says, now these, were, uh, now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. And then from verse 1 to verse 9, it lists who these priests were. Now this list here in the first part of, verse of chapter 12 is a list of those returning priests and Levites who first came back. So this is the first set of people who came back probably six decades before this time. So remember Ezra, the book that's called Ezra comes before Nehemiah. The guy who wrote Ezra also wrote Nehemiah. There are one book in the original, remember that. And so Ezra is reminding his readers, this is the, these are the first guys who came. We want you to know, we kept record, this is, these are the first priests and Levites who came back to reestablish proper worship in Jerusalem. And then in verses 10 and 11 it says, Moreover, the, uh, the Levites were Jeshua, oh, I'm sorry, that's verse 8, verse, uh, verse 10. Uh, it says, Jeshua begot Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiakim begot uh, Eliashib, and so on so, and so forth. Now, in verses 10 and 11, we have all these begots. These are a list of actually the high priests who had been kind of overseeing the priests from the time that they came back up until the time that Nehemiah and Nehemiah's day where we come forward. 
Now, this is important because the high priests had a very specific job. They were the ones that God called specifically to, to minister the, the, the sacrifices for the atonement of God's people. That is, the, for the covering over of God's sin, or of, of, people's, of the people's sin. God doesn't sin, by the way. And so, so in fact, let me kind of read this to you in Leviticus chapter 16. I know you guys probably all read this this morning, but just in case you, you didn't, Leviticus 16, listen to this. It says, Aaron the high priest shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He then, we're skipping down now to verse 15 of of, uh, Leviticus 16. He says, he then shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering of the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do, uh, do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it Uh, on the atonement cover and in front of it. Then verse 24 of Leviticus 16 says this, Aaron the high priest shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put put on his ordinary garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offerings for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and the people. Now you might go, what has that got to do with us? But just hold on, pay attention for a second. This whole idea of atonement is really, really important in the scriptures. God, God makes this command of his people. God makes, when God makes the, creates the world according to Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the universe perfectly. He creates mankind as the pinnacle of his creation, and they're without sin, they're perfect, they enjoy fellowship. You know the story. They sin, and we've been following suit ever since. And because they sin against God, they do things that are offensive to him and destructive to others, because they do this, God could just wipe them out, but instead what God does is he provides a sacrifice. Eventually, as God's people grow, he commands that certain sacrifices are made made as an atonement or a covering up of sin. Now, all these sacrifices, all these bulls and goats, you might think that seems really cruel, seems really harsh, but all these things were meant to show the seriousness of sin and the need for somebody else to absorb the suffering so that sin could be forgiven. This is the way forgiveness works, isn't it? If I sin against you, you choose to forgive me depending upon how bad that sin is. So if I get your name wrong and you're feeling kind of, oh, you should know my name better, I might say, oh, I'm really sorry. Sorry, I forgot your name. And you might go, that's okay, I forgive you. It's so-and-so. Okay, great. You think that's not a big deal. I can absorb that and forgive it. But if I come to you and I go, slap, and I slap you in the face, get out of my way, you might not forgive that quite as quick. You know, it might take you a few more weeks, if ever. If I hurt one of your children, mm, you may forgive me after several years that I've been in jail, but maybe not. But the truth is, if you're going to forgive any offense that's been done to you by me, you have to absorb the suffering of that. That's the way forgiveness works. And so God sets off this this system of animal sacrifices, not because he hates animals, he made them, but because to show there's there's a seriousness to this, the things that you do that are wrong. And there's a serious consequence and a serious need for that to be absorbed by someone other than yourself if there's going to be forgiveness. And all those bulls, all those goats, they all point forward to when Christ, when God himself would take on human flesh and absorb all the sin done against him on the cross. It all points forward to that. Now, going back to Nehemiah. 
So Ezra, who's probably writing this stuff down, says, look, I want, I want to remind you of this record where we, we kept track of who those priests were who came. We have a whole list uh, of all the six generations of high priests who minister this atonement. And then in verses 12, starting in verse 12, he says, Now in the days of Jehoiakim, the priests and the heads of the fathers' houses were, and he begins to list. And from basically verse 12 all the way down to verse 26, he's listing who those people were, who those priests were, who were ministering around the time of Nehemiah. Now he's kind of giving a full list of when this has taken place. A couple of things I want you to notice, just in case you're a Bible geek like me and you're interested in this stuff. Down in verse 23, he mentions that these, these guys were listed in the book of Chronicles. That's not the book that's in the Bible of First and Second Chronicles. That simply just means there's a historical record of this, just so you know. Uh, then also I want you to notice in verse 24, where he's talking about the heads of the Levites, and he names them, and he says, with their brethren across from them, that these guys were set up to praise and give thanks, and they had groups alternating, okay, according to the command of, uh, of David, the man of God. They're, they're basically, it's, it's describing the way that they were worshiping, where they had one group would sing to one side, the other group would sing to the other side, kind of like this. Did we sing the song today? Yes. Yeah, we sing the song today. Uh, the Hail, Hail, Line of Journey, Judah, one person sings, or one group sings, the other person sings. That's kind of how they would sing back and forth. It was a dynamic way to praise, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. The point is, though, he's showing that this priestly ministry continued to happen according to how God said that ministry needed to happen. Now, why? The whole point here is that, that Ezra wants, us to, to, wants his readers to know that the priestly line has been preserved. That which was needed to have for there to be real worship brought before God and for God's people to live the way they were meant to live, that's all been preserved. God made sure in, in all the craziness of being sent off to be under the Persian rule, of all the, the stress of, of having your family and your children taken from you then trying to get them back and replant the land and all this stuff, God has made sure that everything's been protected, everything's been preserved, so that that relationship between his people and him can continue. That's the point. Now, it's interesting because when it comes to this whole idea of the priestly work, that God had said through Moses to his people this. In Exodus 19.6, God had said, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These words you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now when we think of priests, what do we think of? The paid holy guy. He's the one who does all the work. He's the one who prays for us. They're the go-between. That's the idea. There's a go-between between us and God. We can't really see God or get to God or maybe God's too scary for us. So we go to the priest and the priest kind of takes care of that stuff for us. That's the way we think of a priest, right? And in a very real sense, that's what a priest does. But God said way early on to his people, listen, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, in a very real way, I want you to, I want everyone who's a believer in me, everyone who's in, in covenant with me, to be able to come before me themselves. They don't have to go through a priest first. They can come before me themselves. And also, I want them to be, each of them, to be representing me to the nations. Because also what a priest does, of course, is represent God to others. Now, you take this, and you see this in the Old Testament sense, and you think, well, how could this be? Because no one could go into the temple except for the priests, and so how could they be a kingdom of priests? But it's foreshadowing something that happens when Jesus comes on the scene. And one of Jesus' apostles, one of his disciples, 
writes about this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen. It says about us as Christians, it says, You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. And what's more, notice, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. The reason we're bringing this up, folks, is because what's happening in Nehemiah's day is that Ezra wants to make sure that everyone who's in Jerusalem knows God's made a way for you to still come to him. God said it's in the temple where he would meet with his people, and that temple was destroyed, but it's been rebuilt. The city that, that protects the temple has been rebuilt. The walls that protect the city have been rebuilt, and now they're bringing people back into the city to make sure everything that's needed is there, and he's always kept this priestly line to make sure that ministry of priesthood could always take place. This is important. Because God will always provide for ministry to take place. We're in a good season as a church right now. We're really blessed. We have more people than we've ever had. Uh, our, our budget's as, as high as it's ever been. We just got given a building that's worth 400,000 pounds. It's a blessing. We're seeing people come to faith for the first time. We're seeing people who have been Christians for a long time grow in their faith. There's a lot of good stuff going on. But here's the deal. It's going on really good. Now, what happens if it's not so good? Then what? What does that mean? Could we get to a place where there are no more priests? Could we get to a place where God's not accessible anymore? His holy city is closed, sorry? You know, in a very real sense, we can never, ever, ever get to that place. You know why? Because the way we come to God is no longer through servants church or through the catholic church or through the baptist church we come to god solely and completely through jesus christ he is our temple he is our great high priest he is our mediator between us and god he's the one that we go through which means right now listen it means right now there's nothing keeping us from knowing god from drawing close to god from enjoying god you go, yeah, but John, you don't know my circumstances. You're right, I don't. And your circumstances could be horrible. But here's the truth. The truth is, Jesus has made the way for us to know and enjoy God. So much more than what happened in Nehemiah's day. So much more than just being brought back to a city that's being restored. So much more than walls being rebuilt or, or the priests being kept. So much more. We have a great high priest in heaven. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead. 500 people witnessed this. Witnessed him resurrected from the dead. Spoke to him. Heard him speak. Watched him eat food after he resurrected from the dead. A group of at least 120 saw him ascend into heaven. Tripped out for a couple minutes. What it just happened? Tony Angel said, don't trip out. Jesus is going to come back the same way. These people saw this. And Jesus is in heaven right now praying for me and you, making sure that we can know we always have access to this great God who's made everything. This great God who sustained Israel, protected Israel. This great God is accessible to us because of Jesus. That's why this is so important. 
See, the holy city, according to the book of Revelation, is us, and it's being resettled. We had a couple people receive Christ for the first time last week. Praise God for that. That's the resettling of the city. This priestly line that's been preserved, it's no longer the line of Levites, according to the book of Hebrews. It's the line of the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's Jesus who's an eternal high priest forever. And because he's eternal, guess what? We are being built together as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we can priest, be priests to each other. We can help each other say, hey, let's trust God. Let's walk with God together. We have this permanent place. Now, and this is the bit I really want to focus on, not for too long, but this is the thing that really is exciting to me. This stuff happens, and how do you think these guys felt? Were they apathetic? Casual? Oh, that's cool, thanks God. It's kind of nice. Yeah, building, good. Priest, that's cool. No, what happens? They say, we need to have a party. Verse 27, chapter 12. They decide that they're going to have a dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So it says, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites and all their places to bring them to Jerusalem. In other words, those who are living outside the city come in for the celebration. To celebrate the dedication, notice, with gladness both with thanksgiving and singing and cymbals, like, you know, crash, bang, fun, loud noises, string instrument, electric guitar, and harps. Harps are cool, too. And the sons of the singers, they gathered together from the countryside, from the villages of these different places, because they are all in these different places, verse 30. And then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the wall. Now, we have no idea how they did this purification. It was probably just some sort of a ritual to say, Lord, this is you. The, the, the priests probably cleansed themselves. They probably sprinkled water on the people. They probably sprinkled wall, water on the wall. And it was symbolic of the fact, God, it's you who cleanses us. It's you who makes us holy. That's what it was about. But they do this, and this is what I want you to notice. They're doing this The Levites are leading this whole thing and they're leading it with a holy enthusiasm. They're excited about what God has done. Do you know what the word enthusiasm means? The English word enthusiasm? It comes from from a Latin derivative. It means and being in and theos being God. It means to be in God. Enthusiasm basically means like I'm in God, God's in me. It's the idea that you are connected to God. That's enthusiasm. Now don't get me, you know, don't get confused. If you're cheering on, you know, Norwich City, that enthusiasm isn't necessarily of God. If you're Ipswich Gwen, Ipswich Gwen, it's not of God at all, of course, yeah. But, but don't get confused. But the idea is, that idea of the word enthusiasm, the assumption there is that when you know God as he is, he is something to be enthusiastic about. And so here's God's people. They've seen God be so faithful to them in ways that don't even come close to how faithful God's been to us. And they're just like, man, we need to celebrate. Let's get everybody in for a big old sing song. Let's prepare the band. Let's let's sing to God. Let's praise God for what he's done. And then here's what's interesting. In verse 31, it says, so I, Nehemiah speaking here, Nehemiah says, so I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. I want to point out, too, that the word in, um, 
in verse 27 for thanksgivings. And then this word here again, thanksgiving choir, it's the same word. It's, it's used four times in this section. Sometimes it's thanksgiving choir. Sometimes it's just giving thanks. It's a word that literally means to praise publicly. That's what it means. Sometimes it's, it's translated in other parts of the scripture as confession. It's the idea that you are saying, God, I'm speaking to you in front of all these people. That's what it means. And, and what happens is Nehemiah, he, he, he appoints two different choirs, two different groups of people to pray and praise God publicly. He says, one goes to the right hand of the wall toward the refuse gate, and then he lists the people that were there with him. And then if you look at verse 38, it says, and the other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way, and I was behind them on the, uh, with half of the people on the wall. Now, it's, it's kind of hard to understand exactly what this looked like, but I kind of picture him getting everyone on the wall at the same point. Don't think again of fence. Think of a massive wall, a huge wall. If you've ever been to New York and walked that wall, that's a puny little girly wall. We're talking about a huge wall, okay? A massive wall. You could run, ride a chariot on this wall. Huge, okay? And so we're talking about he gets all these huge thousands of people up on this wall, they start here and they kind of go two different directions. And I imagine, here's what I imagine, because what we read earlier, that they're, they're singing back and forth to each other. They're on the wall. They're looking at the city down below them. They're looking out the countryside on the other side. And they're singing like, Hail, hail, line of Judah. Hail, hail, line of Judah. How wonderful you are. How... They're not singing line of Judah because Jesus hadn't come yet. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> So, so they're singing back and forth, right? And you can imagine, right? All, there's a bunch of people down in the city moving towards the temple. These guys on the wall kind of moving around the temple. And they're singing back and forth to each other. That's the picture that seems to be here. Now this is important. Because what we have going on here, of course, is we have this purified people. There's people that know that God's made them pure because the priests have done this, this ritual to, to prove to them that God's made them pure. He's forgiven them. He's accepted them, right? They're being led with holy enthusiasm. And they're being very intentional about making sure that they're encouraging each other with this song. Now, this is important because when we talk about singing in our modern church context, often what we say, especially us as a contemporary church, we think, just forget about everyone else just to worship God. But, you know, that's not actually what we see modeled in Scripture. Listen to this. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20 says this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. It's a waste of time. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? When God's Spirit, God's Spirit who lives in us as believers, when His Spirit stirs us to sing, He stirs us to sing so we'd have hearts towards God, but voices towards each other. It's like that we're singing back and forth to encourage each other. We can trust our God. Yes, we can trust our God. I should write this song. Yes, we can trust our God. And it's back and forth. It's not a competition. It's an encouragement to each other. We can trust our God. Look what our God has done. Let's think about what our God has done for us. We can trust in God. And they're singing to one another this way. Guys, guys, think about how this could transform how we worship through song. 
If we thought about, okay, I'm not here so I can go, oh, I, I want to really feel, hopefully play the songs I like, or I really feel something from God. But we say, we're here, Lord, to have hearts towards you. You are worthy to be praised, whether we feel it or not. And we want to encourage each other. Now, I don't know if you, any of you guys have played team sports before, and I don't know if they, to be honest, I don't know if they do this as much here as they do in the States, but when I played American football, there is a big, there's a huge part of hyping each other up. It is a huge, uh, seriously, we, we know that this actually works. It gives you an edge uh, in your competition to hype each other up. And we had all these different kind of things that we do, and we kind of do this thing where we're kind of all rocking back and forth into the circle. Tiger pride, tiger pride. And we're just doing all this kind of stupid stuff. And getting each other hyped up, we'd hit each other on the, on the shoulder pads. Come on, come on. Slapping the helmet, come on. And you're getting, yes, yes, we're going to do this. And we had all these little chants that, that we knew. And it was to get us psyched up, pointed about the game. Where this is about seeking to win this victory. And it was a stupid football game. We're here to celebrate a God that so loved us. He sent his only begotten son. We're here. Today, we're going to, in just a minute, the, in fact, the ushers, if they want to bring the communion elements up to the front on either side, you guys can do that now. We're, we're here today to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. To remember that this is not just something that makes us feel better, but that we are, are possessing not just a temporary city, it's a good place where we can go meet God, but an eternal city. Not just a temporary priesthood that hopefully God will sustain, but an eternal priesthood in Jesus. That we have something real and eternal, and really even beyond description. Does that not warrant our enthusiasm? Is that not something that we should encourage each other in? Hey, listen, let me be really clear. When the Bible talks about rejoicing and, and having joy, it doesn't mean there's not a place for weeping. The Bible commands us, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But here, here's the reality. We can, on one hand, really in one moment, weep over how bad things can be in our life and still rejoice in how good our God is and that he's promised that all things will work together for good for those that are called. We can do that. In fact, we can do that in a way that I don't know if anybody else can. Who else but we who are Jesus followers can have the confidence that we have a God who's utterly in control, a God who hates the sin and the suffering in this world, and the God who can and is doing something to resolve it. Who, who, who else has this kind of a God who, who cares for us, that looks at each of us as individuals and says, I want to know you. Not just collectively you, I want to know you. You know the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation that when we see God face to face, one of the rewards we get from God is a name that no one else knows but Jesus who gave it and the person who has it. It's like a pet name. Sarah and I have pet names that we really only write in letters. No, you can't know what it is. She refers to me this certain way, I refer to her this certain way. They're just, they're just something intimate about that. The creator of the universe says, that's the kind of relationship I want to have for you. That's the kind of relationship I paid for with my own blood, Jesus would say. Is that not something to be 
enthusiastic about? Is that not something to rejoice over, even when the rest of life is just pretty crummy? And it's interesting because what do we read in verses 40 to 42? It says, we see the two Thanksgiving choirs, they stood in the house of God. So in other words, they walk on the wall and they make the way where the temple is, right? And what's the temple? Remember in the Old Testament setting, the temple is where God's presence dwells. So they're making their way, their goal is to get to God's presence, to be in a place where God dwells. Do you know the scripture says, Paul the apostle describes our, the church services that they're going on in Corinth, and they're a bit kind of nutty. There's some wacky stuff happening in Corinth, and he's trying to correct how they're doing their church services. And he doesn't want them to be, he, it's not that he wants less amazing stuff happening, but he says, look, stop trying to, everybody pray in tongues and looking a bit crazy. He says, instead, pray that you can prophesy, that you can speak what God speaks. And here's what he says, listen, 1 Corinthians 4, 20, 14, 25. He says, because when you do this, as unbelievers or those who don't understand yet, they listen, the secret thoughts, their secret thoughts are exposed and they will fall to their knees and worship God declaring, God is truly here among you. I'm talking to you guys who are Christians now. Do you believe that God is with you wherever you go? Do you believe that God wants to make himself known to us when we gather together? So then... Why don't we act like that? Why are we so slow to believe what God has so clearly said? Why are we so slow to celebrate what is so obviously true according to Scripture? Thank you, Lord, you're with us now. And here's what's amazing to me. This is, to me, this is really cool. It says that in verse 43, it says, on that day that there was a great sacrifices. Now, the idea for great sacrifices there, it's, it's not this idea of like sacrifices for sin like we read about in Leviticus. It's not that. These are probably what we would call peace offerings or what maybe were called fellowship offerings. So these were sacrifices. People would sort of say, God, I'm giving this sort of animal, animal as a sacrifice to you. But then what would happen is they would... They would butcher the animal. They would say, God, this is unto you. They'd burn off the fat, and then everyone would eat it. It was a shared meal. Sound familiar? It was a shared meal. In other words, listen, part of their celebration of how great their God was was to eat together and just go, man, God is so good. And I love this because it's during that shared meal that it says that they rejoiced, and for God had made them rejoice with great joy, and the women and children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. It wasn't just the singing that was loud, it was the joy. You've been to parties, right, where the, you know, everyone's just chatting, but it's so loud you can almost hardly hear anything. The decibels are just, because everyone's having a good time and enjoying their conversations. Guys, listen, do we not have a good reason to get to know each other better and to commit to real relationships? This is why we have a shared meal every month. It's not just because I want to eat your food and not just my own. It's because there's something special about us coming together and saying, our God is good. And our God makes us, who are radically different people, brothers and sisters forever. And we want to celebrate that together. Now, we don't know for sure. It could be that verses 44 to 47 were actually kind of added there by Ezra to say kind of how they were able to do this. So this could have, 
what happens, what we read in verses 44 to 47. Could have been something that happened before, or it could have been something that happened after. But Ezra wants us to know this is connected. That's why he says, at that time, or at the same time, verse 44. He says, at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses and the offerings, the first fruits, so on and so forth. They gathered these tithes. Why did they do that? We read it earlier. So that they could make sure that this ministry could continue to happen, that both the singers and the gatekeepers could keep their charge to God, keep the charge of purification all among the, according to the command, I'm sorry, of David and Solomon. In other words, these guys made sure there was a place where they could take in whatever materials they would need, whatever monies they would need, to make sure that they could keep coming together and celebrating God together. In other words, they were, continu- they were committed to this kind of continual investment so that God's people could rejoice. The whole book of Nehemiah is about restoration. And listen, a big part of restoration is our joy. 